Today we are in part nine of our series looking at the, the story of the Bible, uh, specifically in the Old Testament this semester, looking at, uh, well, we're looking for Jesus in the Old Testament story. And if you were with us last week, you know that uh, we looked at the first segment, I guess you could say, of Moses's life. Today we look at the second segment of Moses's life. Next week we'll look at the third and final part of that. Um, but when we left Moses last week, he had been reintroduced to the God of Abraham. God had told him his name. God had sort of told him who he was and what he was about, what he was going to do. And then he said to Moses, now go. Go to the Egyptians because you will lead my people out of Egypt. And so Moses started heading to Egypt. And when he gets there, he reconnects with the Israelites. And, you know, when he first gets there and tells them what he's there for, they're, they're extremely pleased. And everything's great. But that, it's like his relationship with the Israelites is a rocky one, okay? I was trying to think of how to, it's almost like a dysfunctional family. If you've ever read Exodus and then... Uh, numbers and even into Deuteronomy and I was trying to think how do I give you the, the the feeling of what this must have felt like to stand back and watch these people interacting with one another in such a dysfunctional way and I thought well I'll show you this it is dysfunctional the the Israelites are like a bunch of I mean they're shepherds they're hicks they're they're slaves at this point the Egyptians on the other hand are the most advanced, most sophisticated, most powerful, uh, military, economically, I mean, you name it. These, these guys are, they're, 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 the, they're the best in the world, I guess you could say. And so Moses is going back and forth between these guys. Moses was brought up as an Egyptian, but he has feet in both camps. And so, you know, when he first goes to the Israelites, they're pleased. But when he goes... To Pharaoh, Pharaoh is considered to be the embodiment of the most powerful God of the Egyptians on earth. And so when Moses goes to him and says, God says to let my people go, this is what the, the Pharaoh says. Exodus 5 verse 2. King of Egypt said, who is the Lord? And why should I obey him and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and I will not let Israel go. And what he's basically saying, he's not denying the existence of God. He would never do that. He'd be like, okay, yeah, he's the God, but he's the God of like, you know, far to the north of here. He's got no, he's got no power here. I'm in control here in Egypt. And so, I mean, who is this God? Why should I listen to him? The next nine chapters are going to be about God answering the Pharaoh's question. And so what I want to do in the time that we've got left is look at three things that the book of Exodus tells us about God, about who he is, and how God answers this question. Who is this God, and why should I listen to him? Number one, Exodus tells us that the Lord is the God who rescues or delivers. Um, now, I didn't just say he's the God who delivers, because it sounds kind of consumeristic, right? Uh, first 10 years of our marriage, I worked for Domino's Pizza at night. Uh, I sometimes had other jobs during the day, but uh, that was pretty much a steady thing for me, delivering pizzas at night. And when I first went to work for Domino's, we still had that 30 minutes or less or it's free thing, which the customers love to try to give you bad directions so that you would show up late and they'd get 
their pizza free. Uh, there was, after a while, that got too costly for Domino's, and so they started doing 30 minutes or less, or it's $3 off. Uh, but eventually, the insurance companies were like, no, nah, you can't even do that, because drivers were doing crazy, dangerous things to try to get the pizzas there in time. So I think sometimes if I say God delivers, <laughs> that it's like we get this impression, and I know I've been guilty of this in the past, that we're like, okay, I'm going to get on the hotline and I'm going to give God my miracle order, right? This is what I want. This is how I want it. And then I'll hang up, you know, sign off, and I'll be like, okay, so that should happen in 30 minutes or less, right? And that's not what, uh, I mean, God does have a plan for your life. Sometimes it's the same plan as yours, right? And while prayer is powerful and prayer makes a difference, prayer is not you just telling God, this is how it's going to be, now get on it, right? That is not the way that it works. Um, and so I guess I'd say God is into deliverance, not delivery. And we need to remember that. But if you've ever had an experience where God's plan or his process or his timing was frustrating you, you're in really good company. Because Moses was struggled with this himself. Um, after he goes to see the Pharaoh, the Pharaoh says, well, the Israelites must not have enough to do. So he doubles their workload. He makes things much tougher on them. In consequence, the Israelites are really mad at Moses. So the next time Moses goes and sees God, he says this to him in Exodus 5, verse 23. Ever since I came to Pharaoh as your spokesman, he has been even more brutal to your people. And you have done nothing to rescue them. And it's just, it's, it's crazy, right? It's like, it's like you told me to come down here, tell Pharaoh to let my people go. He said, no, he's made things harder. What are you doing? And God wants Moses to know he is on. It's like he's got a process for this plan. Right? Moses' plan for the Israelites and God's plan for the Israelites are the same. But God's process is going to be a little bit different. So in Exodus chapter 7, verse 4, God says, I will rescue my forces, my people, the Israelites, from the land of Egypt with great acts of judgment. When I raise my powerful hand and bring out the Israelites, the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. And what follows are a series of plagues that God, I would say, unleashes um, upon the Egyptians. And it's things like uh, turning the Nile to blood, and then frogs come in, and then lice, and then flies, and there's locusts, and there's hail, and there's, it's just, I mean, it's literally plagues of biblical proportions, right? And Every single one of these plagues is like a slap to the Egyptian gods. The Nile was considered to be a god of the Egyptians. God says, the Nile has got nothing on me. I'll, I'll do with the Nile what I want to do with it. Um, frogs were gods. Uh, I mean, we don't have time to get into the whole thing. We don't even have time to really talk about all the different plagues that come. And so to try and give you an idea of what this must have been like. I want to show you a short clip from uh, the movie, The Prince of Egypt. So let's watch. The plagues, you know, it's like, they seem brutal. But you got to remember, the, the Egyptians were getting ready to try to wipe out the Israelite nation. Ethnic cleansing was their plan. 
And God loves the Egyptians. He does. He just has a plan for the Israelites that Pharaoh is standing in the way of. And so these plagues are like God saying, who am I? I'm the God that's more powerful than your river God. I'm the God that's more powerful than your frog God, the flies. The, I mean, all of these things are, are a slap in the face of the Egyptian gods. And if you look at them, they're sort of like an unraveling of Genesis chapter 1 and 2, right? The story of creation where things go from complete darkness and chaos and disorder and the absolute absence of life to the, the, the spirit of God coming upon the waters and suddenly you go, from, you go from chaos to order. You go from formlessness to form. You go from, from the absence of life to an abundance of life. You go from light to dark and or dark to light. And what happens in the plagues is it starts going the opposite direction until finally in the ninth plague, there's this darkness that falls upon the section of Egypt where the Egyptians live. If you notice in the movie they showed it, the Israelites, where they live, none of this stuff is happening. And don't think that didn't <laughs> occur to the Pharaoh and think, hey, what's going on here? But that darkness that falls on Egypt there in the ninth plague is so, so dark that the Bible says it was, they could feel it. They could feel the darkness. And Pharaoh, the Bible says over and over and over again, hardened his heart. Now, there are a couple of places where the Bible says God hardened Pharaoh's heart, which has really, really bothered a lot of people, troubled a lot of people. It troubles me. Um, I used to think, isn't that kind of the opposite of God's business, right? I mean, isn't he in the business of letting people make bad choices, even if that's what they want to do, free will, all that whole thing? And if, if it's true that God did somehow harden Pharaoh's heart, it is the only time that I know of that it happens, right? And it almost sounds like what God is doing is like hypnotizing him. Like, you know, like Pharaoh's like, gosh, I really want to let these people go, but, but, but God won't let me. You know what I mean? And so he just keeps doing like almost like a robot, right? He's being controlled by God. Is that what it means when it says the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart? I don't think so anymore. Uh, there's a place here in uh, Exodus 8 verse 19 where the magicians are even starting to get freaked out right at first they were able to sort of mimic some of the plagues that God was bringing upon Egypt they were sort of able to mimic a couple of them and then they get to a place where they can't do it and they're they're like they're like you need to let these people go they say this is the finger of God the magicians exclaim to Pharaoh but Pharaoh's heart remained hard. He wouldn't listen to them just as the Lord had predicted. Now, I wrote that six times because I noticed this time as I'm getting ready for this lesson, that phrase, he wouldn't listen to them just as the Lord had predicted, shows up six times between Exodus chapter 5 and Exodus chapter 14. And I think that this, the picture that Moses is trying to give us here is that Pharaoh's heart is being hardened because of his own decision. When it says the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, I think what's going on is that every time that he saw God prove that he was more powerful than Pharaoh, every time he saw Moses, every time he thought about God, his heart was hardened more. The Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. It wasn't a direct act by God. It was just a direct result of what was going on. Now, there are people that disagree with me, and that's okay. But... But that's what's going on. God is, is, is reaching out 
to rescue, to, to deliver the people of Israel. That's the first thing we learn about God. Second thing we learn about God in this story is that he is the God who redeems. He's brought nine plagues, and each one has just made the Pharaoh's resolve to never let these Israelites go all the stronger. And so in Exodus chapter 11, verse 1, the Lord says to Moses, I will strike Pharaoh in the land of Egypt with one more blow. After that, Pharaoh will let you leave this country. In fact, he will be so eager to get rid of you that he will force you all to leave. And what God lays out next is what the Israelites celebrate every year to this very day, something called the Passover. And uh, God says, I want you to take a lamb and I want you to sacrifice it. And then you're going to eat the meat tonight. But before you do that, I want you to take the blood of that little Passover lamb. And here's what I want you to do. Exodus chapter 12, verse 22. He says, then take a bundle of hyssop branches, dip it into the blood of the lamb, brush the hyssop across the top and the sides of the door frames of your houses. And no one may go out through the door until morning. Why not? Well, because something horrible was coming to Egypt that night. Um, let's go on. Exodus chapter 12, verse 23. When the Lord goes through Egypt, he will see the blood on the sides and the tops of the door frames, and he will pass over that house. He will not let the destroyer come into your houses and kill you. Now, the destroyer is... People have been arguing about what this is for as long as the Bible has been around. The rabbis of the first century during Jesus' day argued about what the destroyer was. Um, I think that if, if the plagues are like an unraveling of Genesis 1 and 2, right, going from, from light to complete darkness, then this destroyer is the ultimate expression of the complete unraveling of Genesis chapter 1 and 2, going from life to the absence of life. Now, God is releasing this thing or unleashing or allowing this thing in one area uh, for one night. But I think that what's going on with this thing is that it is, it is something that was the inevitability and the eventuality of it was unleashed way back in Genesis chapter 3 when Adam and Eve ate the fruit and separated themselves from God. They not only separated themselves from God, but they brought death into this world. And while the destroyer was not unleashed at that moment, I think it began the inevitable process to when that destroyer would be one day released upon the entire earth. And the Old Testament writers, they talk about this day a lot. Some of them call it uh, judgment day. Some of them call it uh, the end of time. Some of them call it the great and terrible day of the Lord. And, and the idea is that when Adam and Eve ate that fruit, it's like that, that moment became inevitable. And when God says to the serpent, I'm going to send a descendant of the woman's and you'll strike his heel and hurt him, but in so doing, he'll, he'll crush your head. Nobody knew exactly what that meant, but what God intended for it to mean is the devil thinks that in Genesis 3, he has reversed God's process of creation and that eventually it will be reversed completely when the destroyer comes. 
And what God, I think, is saying in Genesis 3, when he says, I'm going to send this descendant, he's saying, I'm going to reverse your reversal. Now, nobody knew that, but that's what I think God is saying. That's what I think he's saying in the Passover. When he talks to, his, to, to the Israelites, he says, this destroyer is going to come into these homes and kill the firstborn of every single family, unless here's the one thing that can protect you from the most powerfully destructive force that this world has ever known, a little lamb. That's what's going to protect you. And you're like, what? Why would a little lamb protect us from this, this ultimate destructive force? And it's only because that little lamb was pointing forward. It was an echo. It was a whisper. It was a, it was a shadow of the lamb that would come centuries later, this descendant. And that descendant, Jesus, when he first started his ministry, his cousin, John the Baptist, one day, John chapter 1, verse 29, says he saw Jesus coming towards him. He said, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Jesus would become the ultimate Passover lamb. And I think the only reason that the Passover lamb in Exodus has any kind of power over that destroyer is because of what eventually Jesus would do. Nobody knew it yet. Everybody was still... They, they, they were just looking at what was happening right then. They thought, this is huge. It's like, yeah, it was huge. It was nothing compared to what was coming. So you've got Jesus as rescuer. You've got Jesus as redeemer. Number three, the final one, you've got uh, the God who saves. Egypt releases uh, the Israelites, loads them down with wealth, says, please get out of here. <laughs> and so the Israelites take off. And they're heading north. They're going back home. But they get to the Red Sea, and the Egyptians change their mind. They're coming not just to bring, not just to recapture the Israelites. They are going to come to kill every single one of them, men, women, child, everything. And so they come over the, the horizon. The Israelites see them, and they freak out. They're like, great, you brought us out here to die in the desert. We could have lived as slaves, but you brought us out here to die. It's like don't you see that there might be a third possibility here, right? It's like you would think you just watched as this God brought the most powerful military and economic force on the planet to its knees. And now you would think that you see these Egyptians come and you'd be like, hey, Moses, those pesky Egyptians are back. I think we need an 11th plague, okay? Why don't you, why don't you drum something up or ask God to? But no, they're freaking out, but not Moses. In Exodus 14, verse 12, Moses said to the people, Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. And this is what it might have looked like. Is that what it, when God says that he is the God of salvation, that what that literally means is he makes a way where there is no way, where there seems to be no way at all, where it seems like dead end, this is it. This is the end. That's when God, well, Moses says, see the salvation of the Lord. What he's saying is, you're going to see. He's going to make a way where there seems to be no way. And as amazing as that Red Sea crossing was, and a lot of people will say, come on, Pastor Ed, do you really believe that happened? Well, first of all, it's like, I think I said this with the flood. I, I, it's like if if God did create everything and spoke it all into existence, that's not a big trick for him, right? I mean, that's really not that big of a deal. There's no proving it. There's no disproving it. But this is fascinating to me. 
just recently, archaeologists have started finding uh, evidence of chariots and Egyptian armor and swords at the bottom of the Red Sea. Doesn't prove anything, right? It could have gotten there other ways. There's an awful lot of it down there. And so uh, God makes a way. And it seems absolutely amazing, but it's nothing. It's, it's a hint. It's a shadow. It's a whisper of what he would do one day when he would send his son Jesus, who would find a way through death itself. He would find a way to rescue us from the effects of Genesis chapter 3. He would find a way to, he's not going to stop the destroyer from being unleashed on the earth. What he's going to do is provide a way for every human being on the planet to be safe from that destroyer. And just a few days, as a matter of fact, it may have been the day before Jesus was going to die. He's telling his friends, look, I'm leaving. I'm leaving. I'm going back to my father. And then he says, you know, I mean, he can tell they're, 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 they're bummed. They, they, they're crushed. And he says this in John chapter 14, verse 4. He says, do you know the way to where I'm going? And his friend Thomas says, no, we don't. <laughs> I love this. Thomas is like, no, we don't, Lord. We have no idea where you're going. So how can we know the way? And Jesus told him, I am the way and the truth and the life. And no one can come to the Father except through me. Now, some people look at that and say, well, that's awfully narrow and rigid and restrictive. Why does Jesus have to be the only way? And I guess I'd say because he's the only one that, that came for us. He's the only one that could be the way. He's the only one that could provide. He is the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. And when we think about people in faraway countries that never got a chance to hear about Jesus, don't worry. I believe God has a plan for them. I believe that God, that Jesus' sacrifice comes forward to us now and goes even backwards to even to the Egyptians that were holding his people captive. Nobody will be lost who doesn't want to be. But Jesus' way that he makes through death itself, that's the big one, right? When, when he hung on that cross, his followers thought, it's over, it's done. There's no coming back from this. This is the dead end. There is no way through this. And then three days later, he appears to them. Now, the Bible doesn't say this, but I wonder sometimes if they looked at him and said, no way. And he said, way, you know? I mean, it's kind of corny, right? But it's like, it's that, that's, he, he doesn't say, I'll show you the way. He doesn't say, I'll, I'll send somebody else to point the way. He doesn't say, I'll make sure there are signs so you can find the way to my father. He says, I am the way. I am the way through death. Spend some time thinking about that this week and what that means. But beyond that, I want you to think about this too. That was the big one, right? He made a way through death itself. He continues to do it in small ways in his people's lives every single day, if you'll ask him. Now, his process might be different than what you would choose. His timing may be different than what you would choose. But like the song we listened to during communion, if you feel lost, he's a way maker. That's what he did then. That's what he did at the cross. That's what he still does today, if you ask him. So let's ask him together. Let's pray. Father, sometimes we just feel lost and we look at the situation we're in and we just don't see any way out. So Lord, show us the way. 
Show us your son. Teach us to let him guide us. And then teach us to be patient with your process and with your timing as we wait for him to open up a way where there was no way. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Ed. Remember, we got, uh, you'll need lots of candy for the Harvest Festival.